Good morning, everyone. Does everyone have a Bible this morning? If you don't have a Bible, just kindly raise your hand, and uh, Stephen will kindly get one to you. So, Genesis chapter 21, verses 22 to 34. Now, I must confess that when I first uh, saw this passage of Scripture, um, I thought we might finally deliver the elusive 10-minute sermon desired by so many. (laughs) But in all honesty, whatever the length of the sermon, it's my prayer and hope that we are blessed by it, uh, that God can speak to us through it. So we're back with with Abraham. We're back looking at Abraham's life, and we see that God has been faithful to Abraham, despite Abraham's complete lack of faith at times. We've seen how God has made certain promises to Abraham, including the birth of a promised son, that of Isaac. And last week, we saw how God made good on his promise to Abraham and Sarah. And a child was born to them that really shouldn't have been born. I mean, from our human perspective, a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman giving birth to a child is, is, is something fantastic. So truly, this was God's hand. This was God alive and active in Abraham and Sarah's life. And this miracle was a testament to the power of God. Now we now come to this passage, Genesis chapter 21, verses um, 22 through to 34, and we see a treaty regarding um, Abraham and Abimelech. And we know, of course, the original audience to this particular story or this account would have been the children of Israel. And I think that the reason why it was included primarily was for them to understand that as they were leaving Egypt and going to the promised land, this was their land. And this is the start of it becoming their land. So they were reclaiming what God had promised to their forefather, Abraham. Let's just bow our heads, please. Heavenly Father, We thank you that you inspired Moses to write this account between Abraham and Abimelech. And we're thankful, Lord, that you can use this to teach us today, not just the children of Israel. We ask and pray, Lord, that you'll bring us into a deeper understanding of this passage and of your great love for us. I ask and pray, Lord, that you'll hide me and you'll lift up Jesus. Amen. So we'll begin at verse 22. If you just follow along in your Bibles, please. Verse 22, at that time, Abimelech and Pekol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Abimelech here is, of course, the same man that we met in Genesis chapter 20. And we saw that as Abraham and Sarah arrived into what would become part of the promised land, Abraham decided to share a half-truth with this king Abimelech. 
He stated that Sarah was his sister rather than his wife. And we know that King Abimelech took Sarah as his wife as a result. And God, of course, had to intervene to restore Sarah back to Abraham, thus avoiding any potential smear or suspicion that Abimelech had to hand in the conception of Isaac. Now, in chapter 20, Abimelech is introduced to us as being the king. He's referred to as a king in chapter 20. And this, of course, is a mark of respect of his title, of his authority and his position. But notice this title is dropped in chapter 21. Although he's still the king, he's still the ruler in that area, this subtle omission of his title is really the author's way of illustrating a shift in power that had now taken place between the two men. We see that in an effort of bravado, perhaps, at a display of strength, the meeting that Abimelech has with Abraham, he brings along his commander of his army. Now, had this encounter happened five years earlier, when Abraham lied to Abimelech, then it's very possible that Abraham would have felt intimidated by this meeting and this apparent show of strength. But now this gesture is, is lost on him because he's finally beginning to trust God and he's finally beginning to see that God is working on his behalf in all things. Over the last five years since their previous meeting, Abimelech has been watching closely. He's been noticing how things have gone, how things have developed. He's been watching closely the rise of Abraham and as recognizing him as a force to be reckoned with in the region now. And he knows that the reason for Abraham's success is that God is with you in all that you do. Abimelech witnessed the fact that Abraham and Sarah conceived a son when it was humanly impossible for them to do so. Abraham, of course, was increasing in wealth and status in the region, and Abimelech realized that in time, as Abraham continued to grow under God's favor, he would become a major power in the area, and Abimelech would likely no longer be king. Now, we need to remember that in addition to promising Abraham a son and becoming a father of many nations, it was promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 7, that he would possess the land and it would be for his people. And later in the passage, we discover the first signs of this fulfillment of this promise. We see an agreement over the land, over the well that we now know as Beersheba. So since Abimelech could see how Abraham was being blessed and he was a wise and I like to think a wise and logical type of king, once he realized how things were likely to go, he decided it would be better to make a pact with Abraham and to have him on side rather than to make an enemy of him. And of course, as with most alliances, it's more often the weaker party that seeks out the greater party to form an alliance. And in this case, that's, I believe, what is the, what's happened. Abimelech approaches Abraham to make a treaty. Now, verse 23. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God, 
that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my prosperity. For as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. The problem Abimelech has here is that he wants to make an agreement with Abraham. He wants to make an agreement with God's man, but Abimelech doesn't know if he can trust Abraham. This, after all, is the very same Abraham who lied to him previously. And what's to stop him from doing the same now? Abimelech rightly expected a higher moral standard from Abraham than he did the first time he encountered him. And because he was let down that very first time, it's clouded Abraham's witness to Abimelech now. So our first application point I'd like us to consider is that as Christians, the world is watching us. Our communities, our unsaved families and friends, work colleagues, they're all watching us as Christians. And whether we like it or not, they are holding us to a higher standard than anyone else because of our faith in Christ. Now this means that when we mess up and sin and do something that dishonors God, they are rightly taking note and asking, how genuine are they actually in their faith? What, what difference does Jesus actually make? If we're going to respond in exactly the same way that the world does in difficult situations, then what witness are we actually sharing? Our attitude in those situations needs to be one of confession and repentance, and we need to ensure that we bring to before God that very situation and turn away from it. As Warren Wiersbe puts it, when believers sin, they are disciplined by God until they come to a place of repentance and confession. This discipline is not enjoyable, but it is profitable, and in the end, it produces happiness and holiness to the glory of God. Abraham previously lied to Abimelech, and this compromised Abraham's witness to him now. Now, as followers of the true God, we too need to be aware of how we conduct ourselves in society and understand that our witness has a bearing on the world. Our faith should produce good fruit. It should produce good fruit in us so that the world can see a difference in the way that we act and respond to any given situation. Abraham failed here, and I know that I have failed here too. And I'm sure that if we all searched our hearts, we could all remember times when our witness as Christians has been compromised by us not giving or living as Jesus had intended for us and doing things in our own way rather than his way. Abimelech needs the assurance that Abraham, who is clearly being blessed by God, is actually going to live out a life of integrity as he expects a follower of God to be so. I'm reminded of the old hymn, uh, perhaps you know it as well, it's by C.N. Morris entitled, Can the World See Jesus in You? It's in the Baptist Standard Hymnal amongst others. And if you will allow me, I'll share a few verses and the refrain, but don't worry, I'm not gonna sing. Do we live so close to the Lord today, passing to and fro on life's busy way, that the world in us 
can a likeness see to the man of Calvary? Can the world see Jesus in me? Can the world see Jesus in you? Does your love to him ring true and your life and service too? Can the world see Jesus in you? As an open book, they our lives will read. To our words and acts giving daily heed. Will they be attracted or turned away from the man of Calvary? Friends, may we all, by God's grace, live up to Abimelech's expectations and the world will see Jesus in us in the way we conduct ourselves. Verse 25 and 26. And when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I didn't know who has done this thing. You didn't tell me. I've not heard of it until today. Now we come here to this first glance of a dispute between um, Abimelech and Abraham about a well. And upon closer viewing of this story, I think it gives us greater significance and heralds the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to possess the land. Water is absolutely vital if you are going to settle somewhere. You need to have water if you are going to have land. And so I feel that this, this story, although it may be small and perhaps seemingly insignificant, actually heralds the beginning of something very great and special. Now, of course, Abimelech claims to know nothing about the disputed well, and there is nothing in the text to suggest that we should disbelieve him. Um, it's very likely that Abimelech had managers and servants who conducted his day-to-day -day affairs and ran his business interests, and one of them may well have been responsible for seizing the well from Abraham. So that's all good. Verse 27, verses to 32. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba because they both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phacol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. The two men, Abraham and Abimelech, made a covenant with each other that involved slaying animals. As Abraham and Abimelech walked between the carcasses of the sacrifice, they were saying in effect, May God do to us more if we fail to keep our covenant with each other. Now this was, of course, a serious matter. Both men were agreeing to act with integrity and honour in their dealings with each other. However, Abraham went a step further. He set aside seven very valuable ewe lambs as living witnesses that he had in fact dug the well, and the water therefore belonged to him. He gave the lambs to Abimelech, who would then guard them carefully. They were effectively receipts 
guaranteeing that Abraham owned the well. Now, the name of the well, Beersheba, means, well, it has two, two meanings, effectively. It's uh, like a, a play on words, really, which is just so beautiful to see. Beersheba means well of oath, but it also sounds very similar to the idea of well of seven. And both of these ideas are expressed in the, the gesture that uh, Abraham gave. Well of oath, well of seven. Both men swore to uphold a covenant and the problem was settled bet between them both there. Both men had agreed to work with integrity to deliver the outcome of this covenant. Verse 33 to 34. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Now the site where Abraham planted the tamarisk became a place where Abraham worshipped God. Now whenever we see the phrase called upon the name of the Lord, it really is shorthand for a place of worship a place to meet with God and to worship him in spirit and in truth. A place where God can change us from the inside out and make us into the people that he wants us to be. Where is your place to call upon the name of the Lord? Is it, is it just here on a Sunday? Or are we living for him and with him throughout the week? Are we growing in his presence meeting with him daily in his word, allowing him to transform our minds and our hearts to his will. It's my prayer that we will come before him daily and that we will call upon the name of the Lord because ultimately that is all that matters. Now in my study of this passage, I was fascinated to explore more about the tamarisk tree and why of all the trees to plant, why did he plant this one? You know, when, when the Bible gives us a detail, it's usually for a specific important reason. Well, the tamarisk tree is a desert tree, of course, and it is specially well adapted to salty, arid conditions. It takes salt from the ground together with water and expels the excess salt through its leaves. The leaves collect water and the water drips to the ground, taking the excess salt with it back into the ground. And this process creates a recycling of the salt, which the plant actually needs to help it to survive. Now, the salt, of course, constantly drips on the ground, which prevents other plants from germinating and competing for the limited water in the area. Now, in order to get water from the earth, the tamarisk tree plants very, very deep roots down into the ground, into the uh, groundwater. And secondly, um, in the desert there is often very rare but unpredicted, uh, predictable outbursts of rain, which of course the tamarisk plant can access through its roots that spread laterally, quite uh, far and wide around the tree. But one of the amazing things that I discovered about the tamarisk tree is that in Hebrew, its name is also an abbreviation, a shorthand if you will, for the words food, drink, and shelter. 
And all of these things can be obtained from the tamarisk tree. As we heard already, water can be collected from the leaves which drip water. And the tree provides good shelter from the sun when someone's sleeping, for example. But what about food? Well, there's an aphid that attaches itself to the tamarisk tree. And this aphid excretes something known as honeydew, which is a sweet liquid that can be collected and eaten. And now I think there's something very significant about Abraham planting this particular kind of tree at this particular time. It appears he planted a special tree to bring comfort and relief to the ones who would live in this harsh desert environment. Who would benefit from this tree? Well, that's the point. The tree would ultimately be of benefit for future generations. You don't plant a tamarisk tree for yourself, you plant it for generations to come. So what is Abraham saying in planting this tree? I think he's saying, okay, Lord, I finally believe you. This is my land and you've promised it to me. And my descendants for generations to come are going to be blessed by this land because of your favor. We saw that Isaac, the child of promise, was already born. And Abraham saw that God was also honoring his promise to bless him with land that would be his and his descendants. And Abraham honored God by trusting him and literally laying down roots. The tree was a symbol of shelter, water and food for Abraham's descendants. It would be a blessing to future generations. And all of this would result because of an act of faith on Abraham's part. A second application point I'd like us to consider is this. How much of what we are doing in life is done just for ourselves, for the here and now, done for our own comfort, for our own profit, our own satisfaction? Or are we doing anything to bless or plant a seed of faith for generations that are to come? I really love how God's spirit moves and works. Ola and I, at no point this week, had any conversations about what we're going to talk about or how we're going to discuss what we're discussing. But I can see such a beautiful picture of the sermon in what you shared with us earlier today about a legacy with SFM Ministries. And it just reinforces, I think, how God wants us to understand the importance of us not living just for the here and now, but preparing something for generations to come. Not so that we can be glorified, but that God can be glorified. So I'd ask the question, is there anything that you or I are currently involved in that will outlive us and provide a blessing for future generations? Like Abraham, we need to be planting seeds of faith for future generations. Abraham knew and understood the harshness of the desert climate. He knew that other generations would have to face the same heat, the trials of desert challenges, and that's why he planted a tamarisk tree, to bring relief and comfort to future generations. He cared about their futures, and so should we. What are we planting? What are we growing? Are we working towards helping and blessing our church family for generations to come?
we're at our time. We're at a time in our church where there are new opportunities for all to serve and bring glory to God. And I would ask you very prayerfully this week to seek God and ask him how he wants you to serve for his honour and for his glory. One example that I'd like to share with you is perhaps one that you may have on your heart already, and that is to see children and young people grow as disciples in Christ. Perhaps you've never really thought about service like this before, but now find yourself listening to God and you hear him challenging you to step out in faith to serve in growing future generations of disciples within our church. If that's the case, God has a place for you to serve. By planting a tree and establishing the well, Abraham was ensuring that he would be providing a blessing for future generations by trusting in the promises of God. May we too stand firm on the promises of God and be used by him to be a blessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today and we thank you that we can see how you have blessed Abraham. You blessed him with a son when the world said it was impossible for him to have one. You blessed him with land and you guided Abimelech not to take a hostile position towards him, but to acknowledge the change that was your ordaining. And for Abimelech to wisely seek an opportunity to create a peaceful alliance with Abraham. We thank you, Father, that we can learn from this experience of Abraham in stepping out in faith and planting roots there at Beersheba. We ask and pray, Lord, that you will open our hearts and our minds to see how you want us to do likewise in our own lives. Father, we repent of the times that we have dishonored you through sin, and we have misrepresented you to the world through our attitude and poor example. And we ask and pray, Lord, that you will equip us with what we need, which is your Holy Spirit dwelling within us, so that we can live lives that glorify you in this world. Thank you, Father, for every person here today. We ask and pray, Lord, that you would just bless us with your spirit. Amen.